And tonight, as I said a moment ago, indeed five minutes ago, we are going to replay the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we can replay it with far more sophistication and far more detailed knowledge than was available to those who did books early on. Perhaps even uh, Robert Kennedy himself, who in his book, 13 Days, gives the inside story. But Arthur Sear, did he have the inside story completely? Not completely. He was on the inside, to be sure. Yeah, but we're all prisoners of our time. Uh, the book was published, I believe, posthumously. It was mm -hmm. put together quickly as part of his unexpected 68 presidential race, and it's a politician's book. The surviving principals have been meeting, I believe, since the late 80s uh, at fairly regular conferences, and a tremendous amount of information has become known about what uh, the Soviets were doing, and also since the mid-1970s, we've known what uh, Bobby Kennedy and others in the administration knew but what was not widely known about the efforts of the American government to overthrow Castro. So says Arthur Sear, professor of political economy and world business at Carthage College, uh, author of, among other books, After the Cold War, American Foreign Policy. Uh, and we turn as well now to John D. Gresham, who is the co-author of a new book, DEFCON 2, Standing on the Brink of Nuclear War During the Cuban Missile Crisis. You and your co-author, Norman Polmar, I've talked to just about all of the principles you can get your hands on. Is that right? Anybody we could talk to. Um, but we went to sources that previously had not been talked to a great deal. And they were? Um, we spoke to more of the intelligence personnel. Um, on both sides? On both sides. Alexander Feklazov, who was the KGB resident in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dino Briugioni, himself a very good author, who uh, worked at the National Photographic Interpretation Center. Uh, talked to politicians, not just... Uh, in the Soviet Union in the United States, but also down in Cuba, Carlos Lechuga and some of the other personnel down there as well. Basic proposition about alternative history. I put this to both of you. The proposition, simply. If the Kennedy uh, administration in its early uh, first few months had not sponsored the Bay of Pigs invasion, had not allowed the Bay of Pigs invasion, the ultimately the Soviet attempt to place nuclear missiles in Cuba would not have happened. I would say there's a there's a constructive idea there because we now know that for a very long time um, Fidel Castro was really not a Marxist in his own mind. He had two very very uh, t great temptations working on him in the form of Che Guevara, who was something of a Maoist favoring the People's Republic of China point of view, and his own brother, who was a avowed Marxist, and both of them sort of fighting for his political soul. And but prior to the Bay of Pigs, he really hadn't made up his mind what he was going to be. So, so we drove him into the arms of the Soviet Union? Is that what you're saying? Uh, not so much draw as drive. They had to go somewhere, and of course, yeah. after the Bay of Pigs invasion, I think we'd pretty well established ourselves as the enemy. And did they have Cuban intelligence... Uh, was Cuban intelligence aware of our continuing program after the failure of the Bay of Pigs to still uh, topple the Castro regime, including to directly assassinate Castro? Yes. Actually, that program uh, was not started by the wild, crazy Kennedy brothers. As you probably know, it was started by President Eisenhower, who mm -hmm. had a very, very active um, counterinsurgency uh, and counterintelligence program that generally worked well because it was so secret. But covert action was very much an Eisenhower specialty. And the Kennedys, after the Bay of Pigs, stepped on the gas dramatically. But the hostility between the two great powers was already there. And as this fine new book points out, Khrushchev was under tremendous pressure. He also was aware of the efforts to kill Castro. 
Uh, but he also had these conflicting pressures for more consumer goods and a more effective, productive civilian economy, while the military was pressing tremendously for more assets. What did the military want, not by way of assets and materiel, but by way of action? What were the military looking forward to? I think the strategic rocket forces were their highest priority. Ironically, during the height of the Cold War, military spending on both sides stayed fairly flat. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the Soviets began an enormous strategic buildup, and the Kennedy administration, to some extent, had detonated that with their own enormous uh, intercontinental ballistic missile Because at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the advantage was decidedly with the United States. We had a vast intercontinental ballistic missile force and submarines capable of launching uh, nuclear strikes, and the Soviets only had intermediate-range missiles. Isn't that right? Pretty much. and not very many of them either. No, uh, there were at most a couple of hundred medium and intermediate range missiles in a belt in the Western Soviet Union that could threaten uh, Europe, but... Couldn't reach the United States. No, only, at most maybe a couple of dozen ICBMs that could actually reach the United States and something less than a hundred long range bombers, all of which were several generations down on, on, on the B-52. And at that time we had what? We had 1,500 bombers, mostly B-47s and B-52s. We had something close to 200 ICBMs. We also had six Polaris submarines, each with 16 missiles. We had a large number of cruise missiles, plus over 100 medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles based in Great Britain, Italy, and Turkey, which could hit the Western Soviet Union. Therefore, as Khrushchev must have reasoned it, I can protect our new friend Fidel Castro, which is a beachhead for communism in the Western Hemisphere, that is Cuba is, and I can also uh, restore a kind of balance of terror by getting Mm -hmm. our intermediate missiles poised in Cuba so that they could hit the United States. I'm also also he reasoned that he was not doing anything that the Americans and NATO had not done for well, a generation. Sure. We had yeah. missiles in Turkey, right on, and, and as well we, as in Italy and in England. Right, and throughout the 50s, we had uh, missiles throughout Western Europe, concentrated in Germany, that could you know, hit this, the Soviet bloc. This move to go ahead and put these 60 missiles into Cuba can, can probably represented a doubling or a tripling of the number of missile warheads he could put onto the United States yeah. at any given moment. So for him, it was a vast leap in credibility, both with his own military and with the United States. Now, if you go with the kind of defense theory, or the kind of strategic theory that dominated in through much of the Cold War, the basic reason to mount a nuclear threat against the adversary nation is to dissuade them from undertaking a preemptive assault against you. If they know that you can retaliate uh, and do them sufficient injury even after you've attacked them, then you won't attack them. Were they then, they being the Soviets, were they actually fearful that America might undertake a preemptive nuclear assault? They were. Um, Kennedy and McNamara were unknown quantities. Uh, Sergei Khrushchev, who's visited us, Nikita's son, who's now a professor at Brown University. We'll hear from him later tonight, American from citizen. the interview we did with him a while ago. He, he was very close to his dad. Nikita was a, a very good father. They spent a lot of time together. He helped his dad with his memoirs. Uh, he said his father would say regularly, you can't trust the capitalists, but Eisenhower you can trust. We worked with him during the war. No matter how difficult the task, how uh, impossible the delivery of supplies seemed, Eisenhower, whenever he gave his word, would, would come across. Kennedy was on an unknown quantity, and insofar as Khrushchev had intelligence information about the new president, he wasn't much impressed.
You know, I was really rather startled uh, reading in your fine book, John, uh, as to the number of Soviet forces uh, and the size of the Cuban military force at the time that uh, the crisis uh, was played through. We underestimated considerably how many Soviets were there and how many Cubans were in arms. Probably by a factor of as much as eight. Uh, Incredible. The, tr the truth of the matter was the task force that went out under what was known as Operation Anadar, which was the Soviet code name for the operation, would have, if completed, would have been close to 55,000 troops and technicians, plus oh, two to three times that many regular Cuban military and militia personnel. So it would have been a very, very impressive force from a conventional point of view. You then add to the fact that they had a full array of over 100 tactical nuclear weapons to defend the island with, and it would have been a much tougher nut to crack than our military thought at the time. Now, surely American intelligence, military intelligence, for that matter, even CIA, must have entertained a suspicion or must have kept in mind a possible scenario in which the Soviets would do just what they did. Weren't we... Uh, worried about this before it ever happened. Well, as the book points out, there were staff plans. The intelligence establishment is pretty thorough, as is the military. And there was very specific intelligence planning spurred, I believe, by General Curtis LeMay on exactly this possibility. But the, Even the contingency plan, if the worst happens, yes, is what we do. As Henry Kissinger likes to tell people, though, the, the Pentagon in particular is always planning for everything, partly to cover their, their own position if things go wrong. Uh, but, as the book also points out, the men at the top especially, but also the conventional accepted wisdom was the Soviets would never take a risk like this. And that's what's really different about Khrushchev's moves. Uh, re reckless military action, a dramatic departure from the status quo was not part of the way the Soviets operated. How does the news first reach the White House uh, or the CIA or wherever it's, it first registers that this uh, placement of nuclear missiles in Cuba is underway? Well, it doesn't initially, in the sense that there is a very large movement of merchant shipping, some of it Soviet, some of it contracted. We're aware East. of that. We were aware of that. Uh, this was monitored by all of the American intelligence But we agencies. didn't know what they were carrying. We did not know what they were carrying. Uh, we had some ideas. Uh, some of the deck cargo could be identified by what we call cratology, which is where you can identify a piece of equipment by the packing crate mm -hmm. around it. Uh, um, we, know, we knew, of course, that they were having large numbers of so-called agricultural technicians coming over, uh, all wearing, <laughs> all wearing, right. all wearing tourist clothing. Yes, marching in formation. Marching in formation now, out of with short haircuts. <laughs> we also were running U-2 spy plane missions over uh, Cuba on a regular basis, and we've been doing this for several years, but we really didn't know what was going on. The first indication that there's something unusual comes in August of 1962, actually almost two months before the actual 13 days that people are familiar with, when we start seeing the development of a series of surface-to-air missile sites around the perimeter of the island. And it is suggested by CIA Director John McCone, who had previously been chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, that, hmm, they're putting, putting surface-to-air missiles to defend something, but there's nothing there. That means there's something coming in, and we better keep an eye on it. And that began a battle within the intelligence community and the administration over whether we would continue to look in this area in western Cuba to see whether or not something developed. 
And this is actually one of the untold stories, is the story of how the intelligence community fought to go ahead and keep an eye on what was going on. And finally, we get the oversight uh, uh, photographically from a U-2, don't we? Yes. No. Thanks to a, uh, thanks to a uh, almost accidental discovery of medium bombers capable of nuclear strike uh, as deck cargo on one ship uh, by a Navy patrol plane crew, the Kennedy administration finally allows the running of a single U-2 mission, very low risk, going south to north, only a handful of minutes over dry land on October 14th, Sunday the 14th of October. And on that short, maybe dozen minutes over dry land, the, um, the U-2 discovered three of the five ballistic missile regiments that were setting up. And pretty soon, rather quickly, they set up in the White House DEFCON Dash two. What does DEFCON stand for? XCOM. Well, you were talking about XCOM, but DEFCON has to do with the defense condition. There are five levels of it traditionally in the American military. XCOM is the name of the committee, of course. DEFCON is the condition they go to, ultimately. But the White House didn't do that. That's the crucial point. That goes to another gentleman by the name of General Tom Powers, who is another one of the more intriguing characters in the book. Scary as hell. An interesting character. We got a little insight on him from his operations What's scary about him, Arthur, for you? Please. Well, uh, the book describes him as being kind of a Dr. Strangelove character. One of his military subordinates describes him as cold, cruel, and mean. Uh, like mm-hmm. a character out of the film Dr. Strangelove, he liked to fantasize about war. And during this time, it appears that he was doing everything he could to escalate the crisis. DEFCON 2 is just before General War, and he, on his own authority and his own initiative, uh, took us up to that level without yeah, informing the uh, president. Defense Condition 2 is... Uh, prelude to Defense Condition 1, which is war. Which right. is war, yes. And it involves a lot of confrontational activity. Is yeah. the book quite accurate? This book is very, very strong on military hardware, military strategy. It really is quite, quite informative. When they pulled, X- when did they first pull XCOM, Executive Committee, together? They pulled it together two days after the U-2 flight. It took two days to uh-huh. process and interpret the pictures from that flight. And on the morning of October 16th, uh, at the initiative of National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, the president called together a group of advisors, which were, which was, if you will, the executive committee of the National Security Council. Twelve, twelve in number. Uh, it varied from meeting to meeting, but roughly a dozen. Who were the main figures? Um, you see the president as a regular participant: uh, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, uh, Secretaries of Defense uh, Bob McNamara and uh, Dean Rusk. Usually, some of their undersecretaries: uh, Gilpatrick. Uh, Thompson and such. George Ball is in there. George Ball is in there. Another individual who's in there regularly is um, uh, a representative of the CIA. Um, Sometimes it's uh, the CIA director, John McCone. Other times it's General Carter. Again, they're rotating in and out. Plus you see other advisors. You see Ted Sorensen making appearances. Mm -hmm. You also see military people at various times. Uh, Maxwell Taylor, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And all of this leads to a decision. They talk about how you handle this, what we do to get the Soviets to pull back and... Uh, how and should we invade Cuba? Should we bomb those installations or not? And finally, uh, the Kennedy brothers decide what they're going to do. And a great event is the night of October 22nd, 1962, when Kennedy speaks to the nation, delivering a speech which has already been put in the hands of the Soviets a few hours or perhaps as much as a day earlier. Yeah, that was smart. 
very yeah, smart. was very smart indeed. We're going to hear that speech, or a good portion of oh, it, good. right after we pause for this. We return to Arthur Sear, uh, professor of political economy and world business, and really a major foreign policy analyst and historian, uh, who is based at Carthage College these days, and John D. Gresham, historian, author, researcher, uh, has had a long association with a fellow named Tom Clancy, who writes, in fact, the foreword to this new book, DEFCON 2, by Norman Pulmar and uh, John D. Gresham. We're going to hear directly the speech of October 22nd. Not all of it, but the middle section leading to the end in which he lays down the conditions for the Soviet Union. October 22nd, 1962, on the air in this country, and I suppose all over the world. Here it is. Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception and offensive threat on the part of any nation, large or small. We no longer live in a world where only the actual firing of weapons represents a sufficient challenge to a nation's security to constitute maximum peril. Nuclear weapons are so destructive and ballistic missiles are so swift that any substantially increased possibility of their use or any sudden change in their deployment may well be regarded as a definite threat to peace. For many years, both the Soviet Union and the United States, recognizing this fact, have deployed strategic nuclear weapons with great care, never upsetting the precarious status quo, which ensured that these weapons would not be used in the absence of some vital challenge. Our own strategic missiles have never been transferred to the territory of any other nation under a cloak of secrecy and deception. And our history, unlike that of the Soviets since the end of World War II, demonstrates that we have no desire to dominate or conquer any other nation or impose our system upon its people. Nevertheless, American citizens have become adjusted to living daily on the bullseye of Soviet missiles located inside the USSR or in submarines. In that sense, missiles in Cuba add to an already clear and present danger. Although it should be noted, the nations of Latin America have never previously been subjected to a potential nuclear threat. But this secret, swift, extraordinary buildup of communist missiles in an area well known to have a special and historical relationship to the United States and the nations of the Western Hemisphere, in violation of Soviet assurances and in defiance of American and hemispheric policy, this sudden clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative an unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country, if our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again by either friend or foe. The 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere. 
Our policy has been one of patience and restraint, as befits a peaceful and powerful nation which leads a worldwide alliance. We have been determined not to be diverted from our central concerns by mere irritants and fanatics. But now further action is required, and it is underway, and these actions may only be the beginning. We will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the course of worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. But neither will we shrink from that risk at any time it must be faced. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound to Cuba, from whatever nation or port, where they're found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended if needed to other types of cargo and carriers. We are not at this time, however, denying the necessities of life, as the Soviets attempted to do in their Berlin blockade of 1948. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military buildup. The foreign ministers of the OAS, in their communique of October 6, rejected secrecy on such matters in this hemisphere. Should these offensive military preparations continue, thus increasing the threat to the hemisphere, further action will be justified. I have directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities. And I trust that in the interest of both the Cuban people and the Soviet technicians at the sites, the hazards to all concerned of continuing this threat will be recognized. Third, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Fourth, as a necessary military precaution, I have reinforced our base at Guantanamo, evacuated today the dependents of our personnel there, and ordered additional military units to be on a standby alert basis. Fifth, we are calling tonight for an immediate meeting of the Organization of Consultation under the Organization of American States to consider this threat to hemispheric security and to invoke Articles 6 and 8 of the Rio Treaty in support of all necessary action. The United Nations Charter allows for regional security arrangements, and the nations of this hemisphere decided long ago against the military presence of outside powers. Our other allies around the world have also been alerted. Sixth, under the Charter of the United Nations, we are asking tonight that an emergency meeting of the Security Council be convoked without delay to take action against this latest Soviet threat to world peace. Our resolution will call for the prompt dismantling and withdrawal of all offensive weapons in Cuba under the supervision of UN observers 
before the quarantine can be lifted. Seventh and finally, I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. What a moment. I remember that night. I'm old enough to have been perfectly conscious and involved in all of this. And it was a stunner. They hadn't let me in on the the news in advance of this speech. Mm. It was all news to me. No. Um, as it was, of course, to all the country, except the privileged few who were in the intelligence community or those shaping the policy. What was the reaction back in Moscow? What do we know about immediate Soviet reaction? Uh, I believe they were startled and surprised. Khrushchev thought that the um, missiles would be accepted. It's not clear, I think, to anyone exactly why he was as surreptitious as he was, why he didn't do it more openly. Um, he, he both did it secretly with great speed, which implies that they thought that Washington would be shocked and surprised, which was in fact the case, but also the Soviets were surprised by the reaction. There was a, a misreading of Kennedy. A lot of people thought he wasn't that smart, including people in Washington, and that he wasn't that courageous. Um, in that and, famous and I believe I, that was a misreading. That was a misreading. In that famous Kennedy's Vienna perfect. confrontation, the only <clears throat> prior time they had met Khrushchev Good and point. Kennedy, Khrushchev came out with a very low <clears throat> opinion of Kennedy. Yes, he did, and unfortunately, part of that was driven by the fact that Kennedy was in intense physical pain. Uh -huh. He had thrown out his back um, during a, of all things, a tree planting ceremony in Canada just prior to the uh, the trip to Vienna, and so for the hours he was sitting upright in those hard back, hard up back chairs. Um, I'm I'm amazed that Kennedy managed to even function, mm. and he certainly was not at his best. And of course, all of the things that Khrushchev had thought about him, not the least of which was that it, his own son, Sergei, was older than the president, were pretty much confirmed in his mind. And this is one of the dangers when you don't have any sort of personal intimacy between the leaders of nuclear powers. To understand the other side and to understand Khrushchev, who's the prime mover in all of this, one indeed can go to his son, Sergei. Right. Uh, we all three of us, I think, have met him at different yes. times. I've got some commercials which are overdue. After that, a brief clip of his appearance on this program back in the year 2000, in which he addresses the question of what his father was up to and how his father was thinking with regard to the original placement of the missiles. We return directly to John Gresham, Arthur Sear, and to Sergei Khrushchev after these words. We've heard from Kennedy. Let us hear, we can't hear from the man who uh, was the leader on the other side, but we can hear from his son who was an intimate and knows a great deal about his father, Nikita Khrushchev. And here is a brief conversation that we are, a brief excerpt from a conversation we had with Sergei Khrushchev uh, back in the year 2000. Sergei Khrushchev, what is your understanding of what motivated your father to undertake the placement of those missiles in Cuba? It was only one, the same as was motivated year later President Kennedy to say in West Berlin, I'm Berliner. He, when Americans really presented Castro to Soviets, because before Soviet Union, they did not 
think that he was really communist and he would want to be on our side. It was threatening to have him on our side. Kuba was too far. When he declared this, it was no other possibility than prevent the American invasion. And um, it was could be prevented would be the signal to United States that would you invite in Cuba, it will be the nuclear war. It was what was behind my father's decision to deploy these missiles on Cuba. And it was the best example of all this chain misperception and misunderstanding that lead to this crisis, because my father never thought that will be such a deep crisis. As he did not anticipate the American reaction yes. to the missiles being placed in Cuba. Yes, because he thought that the same reaction is in Europe, where you're more thinking about political decisions. But Americans, for all their history, were secure by two oceans. Mm -hmm. And it was the pressure on the White House from the uh, public opinion, from the media, from military, just kick them out. And I spoke with some Kennedy, mm -hmm. c people close to Kennedy during my research and asked why. You knew that we never launched them the same as you will not launch your missiles from Turkey. He told, we knew this. And really, the real politics was acceptable to us. But we, would we announce this? Americans would kick us from the White House yeah. in a week. So there was under the situation when they had to solve problems unprepared. So you're saying that the reaction of Kennedy and company was as much politically motivated as it was motivated by strategic considerations. Is that what he was saying? Both of you have talked with Sergei as well. I would tend to agree with that. The truth of the matter was is that the missiles coming into Cuba were not a fundamental alteration in the balance in the sense that we lost any real measure of our nuclear superiority. The thing that was dangerous were the class of missiles. The medium and intermediate range missiles which were deployed to Cuba were very vulnerable. They, they weren't hardened or in silos. And so consequently, since they could be knocked out by something as simple as somebody with a rifle shooting shooting at them, you were stuck with the problem of either using them or losing them if there was any sort of airstrikes going on. So they were destabilizing in that sense. Now, on our side, there were those in consultation with the president in XCOM and in the backup organizations. Uh, there were those among the military and perhaps from other sources as well who were advocating, let's do a full military strike. Let's oh, yeah. bomb and let's invade. That, that was clearly the weight of opinion, very very much the heavy weight of opinion who in the initial discussions. Who, who led that faction? <clears throat> I think um, initially McNamara speculated along that line. Bundy was certainly a hardliner and so were the military. Douglas Dillon, they were talking about the need to get these, and Paul Nitza, we were phrasing mm -hmm. off, off the air. Community as well. <clears throat> That's right, which shows the state of opinion in the U.S. Kennedy, who was a great reader, in fact, had read, been reading the Guns of August about how nobody expected World War I to begin the way it did, and he kept telling people, we're not communicating. For them to think we can accept this is almost unbelievable. And Bobby Kennedy told his brother, you would have been impeached if you hadn't acted. The political pressure was such that the president had to act. The president also, Kennedy had a remarkable ability to stand outside himself, especially for a politician. 
And he said, you know, I wish I hadn't made such a big deal about offensive versus defensive weapons in Cuba. If I hadn't made, drawn the line in the sand in press conferences, we could work this out, but I have no choice now publicly. He was quite perceptive about that. He'd really painted himself into quite a corner, and he had to extricate himself <clears throat> in a manner that allowed Khrushchev to also extricate himself. And it was very difficult and for avoid both war. Yeah. So it takes a number of days and uh, various communications. There's the first Khrushchev letter and the second Khrushchev letter, a crucial At the end. Uh, part of the story towards the end. But, um, well, in fact, let's deal with that right now. What were the Khrushchev letters? There had been, in spite of the lack of one-to-one -one meetings, a fairly regular dialogue of notes between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Um, most of them would be described as thermonuclear pen pal letters, uh, congratulating <laughs> each other on various achievements in space and technology and such. But you come down to the actual crisis, and these are the notes that they use along with back-channel operatives and other people to actually go and set down the terms of settling the crisis. The problem is that while Kennedy and Khrushchev have the ability with their very advanced command and control systems to initiate a nuclear strike inside of 15 minutes, it takes a minimum of 12 hours to send a simple text message between them. And so you have to get a lot in, in and out of these notes to go ahead and solve the crisis. Hold one second. Why does it take 12 hours? Because this was 1962. There was no hotline. The hotline was an outgrowth but of the crisis. There's telegraphy, there's radio contact. Yes, but there, there's such a thing as secure radio contact mm -hmm. and secure telegraphy. So consequently, the means by which we communicated with them was the literal handing of diplomatic yeah. notes between our State Department and their embassy personnel, Ambassador Dobrynin, he would then go ahead and have his KGB section encrypt it using one-time pad code methods, at which point they would type the note out on Western Union telegraph forms, which would then be sent in the clear to Moscow, mm -hmm. decrypted, reassembled, and then handed off to the Ministry of uh, State and the... Uh, You've got a speculation in the book about a Western Union delivery boy. Yes, and... Though everybody was terrified at the, at, the, at the Soviet embassy, which was the old Pullman house, that the weak link or the security breach would be these minimum wage Western Union boys in their little uniforms riding on bicycles between the Pullman house and Union Station in Washington, D.C. And they literally were carrying the messages that saved the world. Between Incredible. Them. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why after the crisis the very first thing that everybody agrees on is the creation of a secure sure. telecommunication system between moscow and the washington that hotline is still tested every day isn't it every day it's 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 been a godsend and I think to some degree, just it being there has probably kept some crises from going out of control. It's also now, been greatly upgraded. Excuse me. The initial sure. one, great as an advance as it was, was still a clunky old teletype. Yeah. Basically an old TTY system, just like mm -hmm. you and I grew up now, with. Now, let's deal with the Khrushchev letter one and two. Well, as I recall, the, um, uh, the letter that came in um, first was a very personal letter, a very passionate letter. It really sounded like the earthy uh, and rather desperate man himself. That was followed by a much more official letter. Uh, the Kennedy people decided quite wisely, sometimes a childlike reaction can be the best, not always, but since they took the one they liked and ignored the one they didn't like. Well, the one they liked had a more generous offer than the second one, isn't that yes. right? Yes. And the irony was that because of the way they were sent via Western Union, 
the second letter was actually the first one sent. In other words, right. the hardline letter had been sent no. first, and afterwards Khrushchev had sent the so-called... What was the difference in what the two letters... Channels. What was me. the difference in what the two letters offered? Um, yeah. It had to do mostly with the removal of U.S. Uh, Jupiter missiles from Turkey. And that had been a particular sticking point with Khrushchev for a very, very long time. While he had not liked the uh, introduction of Thor and Jupiter missiles into Italy and England, putting him into Turkey really irritated him. He could see Turkey from his Dachau. Yeah, yeah he could literally see yeah, Turkey from his Dachau in the Black Sea and would make a very strong point about it to visitors and guests. Mm-hmm. And thus, to put them into Cuba was, in a way... A matching behavior, doing the equivalent thing. Reciprocity, yes. Yeah. Uh, the crucial question is, uh, was the was the fix in? Was it inevitable that this would be settled the way it was? Or was it, as the Duke of Wellington said about the Battle of Waterloo, a damn close run thing? Much closer run than we ever thought. Um, one of the big things we worked on in the book is answering the question, how close did we come? To, to nuclear war. Well, certainly to exchanges of nuclear weapons, large-scale nuclear war. Yeah. And the answers that we came up with were downright terrifying when we did. Uh, in particular, it probably came down to, on two occasions, a matter of minutes. Explain. What well, occasions were those? On the 27th of October, which has been described by many people quite properly as the high-water mark of the Cold War, um, it's best known by people here in the United States as the day we had a U-2 shot down by one of those surface-to-air mm-hmm. missiles. Over uh, Cuba. Over Cuba. Um, Major Rudolph Anderson was shot down, and many people assumed this was a potential spark plug to nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, it really wasn't. People on both sides realized very rapidly what had occurred was a an accident, forces bumping, if you will. But at the almost the exact same moment that uh, Anderson's U-2 was being shot down, another U-2 from his very unit was conducting an atmospheric sampling mission over the North Pole, essentially sucking up nuclear residue out of the air to do assessments of Soviet above-ground nuclear testing. Well, the pilot, a major by the name of Maltzby, accidentally got lost. Uh, navigation at high latitudes is a pretty iffy thing, and he accidentally turned right when he should have turned left, and he wound up flying over Siberia, resulting in the Soviet Far Eastern Air Defense Command launching a pair of MiG-19 fighters to intercept him. Well, he got himself straightened out and said, headed back towards Alaska. The ground radar controllers in Alaska saw the two MiGs climbing up to get him, and they launched a pair of F-102 Delta Dagger interceptors out of uh, Alaska to intercept the MiGs. Those two aircraft were both armed with nuclear-armed air-to-air missiles, Falcons, each with a quarter-kiloton nuclear warhead. And the rules of engagement were they were clear to act, they could launch them if they were in range, and they got within several minutes of firing, though luckily the U-2 exited Soviet airspace, the MiGs turned around. But it was probably within two or three minutes of the first nuclear weapons being fired, and they would have been fired by U.S. interceptors. But if fired, they would have essentially just destroyed airplanes. They would have destroyed the two MiGs, yes. Don't you think that uh, wiser heads back in the Kremlin and back in the White House would have said, we must not let this drive us to full exchange of nuclear blows? One would have hoped that, but remember, both sides were at a very high level of alert. Mm-hmm. DEFCON 2, just short of war. That's so- the title. The Soviets have a very similar level of yeah. alert. And at that level of alert, 
people at very low echelons have release authority over nuclear armed weapons. For example, at DEFCON 2, the release authority on nuclear surface-to-air missiles of the Nike family, which we had here in the United States, that was in the hands of captains and lieutenants. There were no permissive action locks that required that they be given a code to go ahead and push the button. Uh, Tom Clancy has a friend he went to school with who was in command as a lieutenant of one of those Nike batteries. And we're talking about surface-to-air missiles with 100-kiloton warheads on them. And this kid could have launched them uh, if he had wanted to. The single fam most famous line uh, uttered, I think, during uh, the extended Cuban Missile Crisis was Dean Rusk's line. We're standing eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. Mm -hmm. What was the blink? Ah, when the Soviet, well, I believe that was earlier in the crisis when the Soviets finally decided, as they were approaching the, the blockade line, um, which had been moved closer to Cuba in order to give them more time to think, the Soviet ships were dead in the water and then started to move away. I they think that away. was the source of his famous line. Although it needs to be said, that was the other place where we were eyeball to eyeball with nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, and that was out in the Caribbean where the Russians had a number of diesel-electric submarines coming down from Murmansk to be based in Cuba, and they ran into our quarantine line of destroyers <clears throat> and aircraft carriers that were enforcing the blockade. And each one of those submarines had a nuclear torpedo with a nuclear warhead roughly the size of the one that took out Hiroshima. I'm sure we were in great danger at mm -hmm. that moment, but I think you might make the argument that at other points, uh, by virtue of inadvertence and mistakes and confusion and malfunctions, we were also in danger of accidental nuclear war. When we return, after some impending commercials and a brief newscast, I want to play for you something I've played a number of times on this program, a conversation I had with uh, Robert Gates, the former director of the CIA, oh, referring back to a time when he was on the National Security Council staff during the uh, Carter administration. We return directly after this. Who was about to play for Arthur Sear and John Gresham what is probably the most frequently repeated replayed clip from the long history of this program. But it's very relevant right now because it points out that the delicate balance of terror was extremely delicate and quite capable of going imbalanced uh, through sheer accident. So we might have blundered into a full exchange of nuclear blows and essentially the destruction of civilization because of somebody's stupid mistake. Not a mistake as big as placing missiles in Cuba. Here's the conversation with Robert Louis Gates. This goes back to uh, March 9th, 1996. This is 10 years ago. Gates had been director of the CIA later, but here he is reflecting on a, a very unusual night during the Carter administration. Was there ever, on either side, a serious apprehension that we might be on the brink of a nuclear exchange? There were three occasions after the um, Cuban Missile Crisis when we may have come closer than uh, the public's knew at the time, really? and in a couple of cases, the governments themselves may have known. Uh, the first was in the Yom Kippur War, when the Soviets uh, alerted seven divisions of their airborne troops to go to the Middle East to help the Arabs, and President Nixon put all of our strategic forces on a state of heightened alert. The Soviets then did the same, and that one eventually, uh, actually rather quickly, uh, de-escalated so that 
there was a there was a great concern about a miscalculation at that time, and both sides were watching very closely. There was also a feeling in this country uh, that President Nixon might have been risking uh, a miscalculation, a war in effect, uh, to try and alleviate some of his domestic political concerns. And there was even a story at the time that Secretary of Defense uh, Jim Schlesinger had issued an order to the military services that no directive yeah. from Nixon yeah. was to be obeyed unless it came through him. Was that story true? I remembered it. Well, I don't know. I, uh, uh, it has been attributed to uh, uh, the White House. I, I think uh, Schlesinger may have a different view about mm -hmm. whether it really happened. Nixon was in the Watergate soup by then. That's right. This was October of 73. So, oh. And it really began, Watergate, I think, began to really unravel in the early spring right. of, of 73. That was one such danger point. There were two others. The second occurred during the Carter administration, and, it, and I discuss it in the book. But in essence, uh, in, uh, in 78 or 79, in the middle of the night, one night, Brzezinski got a call from his military assistant uh, at home telling him that the military assistant had been informed by the National Military Command Center that the Soviets had launched 220 warheads at the United States. Uh, Brzezinski, knowing that the president's window of decision was four to six minutes uh, before it would be too late, decided he had to take an extra minute or two to try and determine whether this was true or not. He asked his military assistant to confirm that the Strategic Air Command had launched or was launching its bombers and that the appropriate measures were taken to alert U.S. forces. His assistant called back a minute later and he said, indeed, the first report had been mistaken. There were not 220 nuclear warheads launched against the United States. There were instead 2,200. It was an all-out attack, or it appeared to be an all-out attack. Oh, God. Brzezinski later told me he didn't even waken his wife. Uh, sleeping there beside him. He figured that the world was coming to an end, and he had about another minute before he called the president. And just before he picked up the phone to call President Carter and tell him what he thought was happening or what appeared to be happening, he got a third call from his assistant who said that the space-based sensors were not picking up launches from the Soviet Union. Was this the famous flight of ducks? No, this one was a an error at the North American Air Defense Command, where or at the Strategic Air Command, where an exercise tape had been put oh, yes. into the computer right. by mistake, and and fortunately, because none of the other sensors uh, validated a, a launch against the United States, nothing happened. The third the third event happened in 1983, and. Ironically, the United States didn't even know it had happened. As you probably remember, 1983 was a year of huge tension in the relationship. The United States began to deploy its intermediate nuclear forces to, to Europe, the ground-launched cruise missiles, Pershing twos, and so on. All of the arms control agreements were, uh, arms control negotiations were suspended for the first time since 1969. And Ronald Reagan's getting very aggressive. He makes his evil empire He makes the evil, evil empire, empire announces the He announces SDI, SDI the Strategic, Space, Defense, Defense, strategic Initiative. Defense Initiative. The Soviets shoot down the Korean airliner, right. 007. Yeah. The American military attaché or one of our uh, military liaison officials in Germany, Major Arthur Nicholson is uh, shot and killed by the Soviets who stand by and watch him bleed to death. In other words, there's just one event after another that year 
that builds tension, uh, and you are in the midst of a gigantic military buildup in the United States against the backdrop of, uh, of Reagan's rhetoric. In the Atchison phrase, it's eyeball to eyeball. Absolutely, and, and, uh, and both sides are very wary of one another. It really is, I think, the most dangerous year of the latter half uh -huh. of the uh, Cold War. The 2200 Soviet missiles heading towards the United States really stands out. I believe Brzezinski then added there were 22,000. It was clearly a computer malfunction. But when he describes it, it's, uh, it's quite gripping. He, he definitely earned his salary. Were we in that great danger, that sheer stupidity or sheer mechanical failure or human fallibility could have produced nuclear immolation of the world? Yeah, that's right. And both dangers were present in, uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the atmosphere of the time, another, uh, uh, I don't want to sound like an agent for the book, but the book uh, very effectively communicates the very different state of military culture uh, a generation ago. We're living in the era of Colin Powell, um, who personifies, to, to my mind, very well a military that, partly because of Vietnam, is very cautious about using force, wants to use overwhelming force. Rumsfeld has clashed very directly with that military in ways that Robert McNamara did. They're very similar personalities, um, domineering, imperious, and they don't listen much. But McNamara was trying to restrain a military that was personified by Curtis LeMay, a group of men who were in many ways quite anxious to go to war. We'd gone through World War II. Let's get it over with. They were well aware of how powerful we were vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. And that percolated through American public opinion as well. You realize the tremendous pressure to use force that was faced by the White House at that time. Those I days, believe this book captures that effectively. LeMay headed the Strategic Air Command. Yeah, and, he, and uh, when you read, the more you learn about him, the more frightening it becomes. Low-level bombing of Japan going in, you know, the B-29s were already incinerating most of the country, but he insisted that they fly in at a couple of hundred feet. Now, at that level, it becomes a human barbecue and men who are already facing a lot of emotional as well as physical stress have to smell, you know, burning flesh. LeMay would go out on missions himself. He enjoyed it. This is the kind of guy you need to win a war like that. It's like that. the smell of napalm in the morning, isn't it? Anytime, it's, day or night. It's worth pointing out, LeMay is an intriguing character. People I know who, have, who knew him, and I've met him, I met him twice before he died, uh, charming, urbane, intelligent, very genteel in his own right. And yet, this is a man who may have been the first legitimate purveyor of megadeath, in that he had either uh, led raids or ordered raids that had easily killed a million Japanese, Italians, and Germans before anybody gave him a nuclear weapon in August of 1945. This is a man who was not, who simply had desensitized himself to the human aspects of it and was very ready to go ahead and carry out his nation's bidding and interests. Uh, and, and if you think he was uh, cold, you should have seen his assistant, Tommy Power, who was yeah. something else altogether. In a recent program, we talked about Stanley Kubrick's great film, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yes. And, uh, and noted that uh, General Jack D. Ripper, mm -hmm. uh, as played by George... Um, C. Scott. It? George C. Scott. Who captured clearly, Patton brilliantly, another man who was essential to victory. Excuse me. But that he was based on uh, on Curtis LeMay as much as anybody yeah. else. Yes, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the character of the general down at the base, played by Sterling Hayden, was very much Tommy Power, uh, who was the SAC commander during the crisis, mm -hmm. Curtis LeMay at that time having been elevated to the point of being chief of staff of mm -hmm. the Air Force. So you have these very, very 
focused individuals in very high-ranking positions. Now, it needs to be said, they were not crazy. They, they, they wanted to be proactive. They wanted to be aggressive. But they were always in control. And they were always professional. And very different from today's military. Very different. It's important to you know, understand the difference. A few questions there. about the consequences of the Cuban Missile Crisis. One, um, if we had not given those guarantees that we would uh, not invade Cuba as a way of getting Khrushchev to withdraw uh, his nuclear forces, if we had not given those guarantees to get a resolution of the crisis, would the Castro regime still be there? If we had not given the, I think... Th I don't think the Americans were, would, could have carried out a full-scale invasion. There were indications that the Kennedy people may have been planning a second invasion. More important, uh, Mongoose, this program that started under Eisenhower but was vastly expanded after the Bay of Pigs and put under Bobby Kennedy's direct control, Mongoose, which employed thousands of men, including some of the most violent mercenaries money could buy, oh, yes. and millions of dollars, that accelerated tremendously after the, after the missile crisis. The purpose crisis, of Mongoose was what? Uh, to overthrow Castro, burn crops, disrupt the economy, and assassinate Castro. Uh, it continued full blast, escalated right up until Dallas after mm -hmm. which Lyndon Johnson immediately turned it off. It was the largest single station the CIA had. It uh, occupied a very large building on the uh, south campus of the University of Miami. Miami University. And it was, it was huge. Why yeah. did it fail? Um, one essential problem. It did not understand what had happened in Cuba before Castro, which is to say <clears throat> they had an individual in the form of uh, Batista who was perhaps the single most vile Latin American dictator in the history of, of the region. Second question about the consequences of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What did it do to alter strategic thinking and, to that matter, uh, the development and deployment of strategic weapons? Well, as we discussed earlier, it ironically launched a large-scale strategic arms race. One disagreement I have with the book, the point is made that uh, we were tentative and hesitant in Vietnam and the use of force perhaps because of the anxiety, fatigue, and genuine fear that resulted from the missile crisis. My own strong impression, based in part on direct experience, is that in fact there was a kind of hubris, a notion that limited war controlled force in fact could get results. And that fed into a limited war doctrine, a highly intellectualized version of war that was very popular in the U.S. Army at the time. Uh, Thomas Schelling has received the Nobel Prize and I'm sure he deserves it. One thing that I didn't see at all in the media, a colleague of mine told me there was some reference to it. He produced two books, Arms and Influence and the Strategy of Conflict, that were instrumental in the kind of limited signaling, very restrained approach to warfare that characterized some aspects of the Vietnam War. I think there was a kind of confidence about the capacity to manipulate events that resulted from the missile crisis and there I disagree with what I take as uh, the thrust of the book's lessons applied to Vietnam, but you may disagree. Well, I might. I will also say that uh, in the case of both Cuba and Vietnam, it's worth noting that the United States failed to understand the very first reality of it, which is Castro was a popular, populist yes, leader. Very. The Cuban people remembered what they didn't have under Batista, and that Cu Cuba was, in fact, greatly elevated in 1962 from what it had been in, in 1958. And so consequently, there was no popular desire to go ahead and get rid of him. Yes, the middle class, or what was left of it, was angry with him, and certainly the expatriate community was. But there was no popular movement inside Cuba to get rid of him. And similarly, if you go to South Vietnam, 
there never was a popular government there. So consequently, there we were always trying to prop up a government which never had the backing of the people. The revolutionaries had very effective intelligence operations in both, and a very effective police state in Castro's Cuba. And it's worth noting, Castro had the Cuban expat community in Florida absolutely wired for sound. He mm -hmm. knew yeah. he knew everything that was going and on. And they were highly divided and argumentative. Oh, yes. I've met some of these characters. Uh, I, I grew up with some of them in Southern California, yeah. and uh, while they have excellent taste in food and cuisine, uh, start talking politics with them, and you're going to get 20 different opinions out of 20 different people. By what date uh, is the crisis more or less officially over? You would like to believe, if you listen to the people inside the administration, that it was 13 really bad days. Truth be known, it really started in August and really ran through the end of 1962, if you talk about the withdrawal and verification phase. Because I have one more clip I want to play for you, and obviously for our listeners. This is from October 28th, and it's Kennedy... Uh, briefing Eisenhower, his predecessor. Huh. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, and giving an explanation. And, and it's worth noting, the two of them had a very strong intimacy that they developed after Kennedy became yeah. president. Hmm. Here it is, then. Kennedy needed them. Kennedy's explaining the crisis to Eisenhower. Hello? Yes, please. Oh, the general name. I'll put it on. Yes, sir. Ready? Hello? Joe, how are you? Oh, fine. General, I just wanted to bring you up to date on this uh, matter because I know of your concern about it. We got uh, Friday night, got a message from uh, Khrushchev which uh, said that uh, he would uh, withdraw these missiles and technicians and so on, providing we did not plan to invade Cuba. We uh, then got a message, uh, a public one the next morning, in which he said he would do that if we withdrew our missiles from Turkey. We then, as you know, uh, issued a statement that uh, we couldn't get into that deal. So uh, we then got this message this morning. So we now uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds, and there's a good deal of complexities to it. Uh, if the, uh, the withdrawal of these missiles, technicians, and the cessation of uh, subversive activity by them well, we just have to set up satisfactory procedures to determine whether these actions will be carried out. So I would think that uh, if we can do that, we'll be uh, find our interested bands, even though it may be only one more chapter in a rather long story as far as Cuba's concerned. Of course, but, uh, did he uh, does he whatsoever? No, except uh, that uh, we're not going to invade Cuba. That's the only one we've got uh, now. But we don't plan to invade Cuba under these conditions anyway. Oh. So if we can get them out, we're better off by far. Uh, that's correct. I, I quite agree. I just uh, wondered whether he was trying to, uh, knowing we would keep our word, whether he would try to uh, engage us in any kind of statement or commitment that would finally one day could be uh, very embarrassing. Uh, Suppose they got it. Suppose they start to uh, to uh, bombard Guantanamo. Right. Uh, what I'm getting at, I quite agree. This is a very, uh, I think, a silly story move. Right. Oh well, I agree. Oh yeah, that's right. I think what we've got to
That's why I don't think the Cuban story can be over yet. Uh, I think we will retain sufficient freedom to protect our interests if he, if he, uh, if he, uh, if they engage in subversion, if they uh, attempt to do any aggressive acts and so on, then all bets are off. In addition, my guess is that uh, by the end of next month, we're going to be toe-to-toe -to -toe in Berlin anyway. So that uh, I think this is uh, important uh, for, the, for the time being because it uh, requires quite a step down for really for Khrushchev. On the other hand, I think that, uh, as we all know, they just uh, probe and uh, their words unreliable, so we just have to stay uh, busy on it. They take any spot in the world, they don't care where it is. That's right. And it's just the question is, are you in such a place you either can't or won't resist? That's right. Yeah. Now, when we got to the Tibet, not even good Tibet, yeah. up in that mountain country, and we couldn't reach it. Right. And so, uh, well, what we do then is the first itself. Right, right. So, uh, so they get to and they probe when, it, when you can't do anything. Then if they get another place where they think that uh, you just won't for some reason or other, yeah. why don't they go ahead? That's right. I think you're doing exactly right. right. Go ahead, but uh, just uh, let them know that you won't be the aggressor. But if the other guy then you've always got the right to determine right. the other guys that they just. Well, we'll stay right out and I'll keep in touch with you, General. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. Well, what did you make of that? Uh, one couldn't hear all of the Eisenhower side of that conversation. Still, what do you learn from that? Um, I'm quite biased. I think Eisenhower was the greatest president since the Second World War. He was a very complicated man who was an extremely good actor, including acting like an uncomplicated man on two separate occasions, quite respectively, but very, very clearly, President, former President Eisenhower probed Kennedy about what was the deal, you know, what was the quid mm -hmm. pro quo. This was a... And it's curious to me that President Kennedy um, taped that particular conversation. Uh, the Kennedy brothers, like Nixon, had a taping system, but unlike Nixon, they turned it on and they turned it off. And that's one he probably would have wished he hadn't taped. Um, I'm going to go and concur enthusiastically with you about your assessment of Eisenhower. Uh, both Mr. Polmar and I have the utmost respect for Eisenhower's presidency and his handling of matters. Uh, mm -hmm. He certainly came to the office perhaps the best equipped man since Washington for the job. As an executive, certainly. As an executive, yeah, certainly. Very unusual and a politician. And as a proactive leader of the military and a user of intelligence, he was incomparable. Yeah. And there was a popular notion that Eisenhower was docile and liked to, you know, spend a lot of time on the putting green. <laughs> in fact, behind the scenes, this was a man who, in addition to running the country very, very effectively, building massive infrastructure, such as the interstate uh, highway system, was also building the national strategic intelligence community literally from the ground up and in yep. his own image, and and actually planning some of its early operations, if you talk about the U-2 and the satellites. Exactly. Arthur, why do you say that Kennedy might have done better to turn the microphone off for that one well as we know now there was a deal he and quite and quite appropriately he, he agreed to take the missiles out of turkey yes uh and that was not known publicly and the administration rather explicitly denied it in yeah. fact adlai stevenson 
um, who suggested that was used as he took the fall publicly. I, I believe President Kennedy yeah. treated Stevenson worse than Stevenson ever treated anyone. Very shabbily. And mm -hmm. in effect, uh, used his good journalistic sources to to make Stevenson the fall guy. And so Adlai, you know, he's he's effeminate. You know, the the things they like to say about him behind his back. Of course, he wanted to sell out. He wanted to trade for Turkey, but we'll never do that. Truth be known. Adley Stevenson was one of the finest civil servants within the Kennedy administration. He had a lousy job as the uh, UN ambassador. In the Kennedy administration. In the Kennedy administration. He was treated shabbily. He was used to front bad policy. Well, politics is a tough, rough hey, trade. It's a mean, cruel world. Along those lines, just to round things out and going back a number of days, how about the great confrontation between Stevenson and the Soviet ambassador to... Uh, the UN. We've got that. Oh, right it's here. a great. You want to hear that? Yeah. One? Yeah. That, that, for, <laughs> Send for it to the Bush days. White here House. We go. <laughs> I hope we go. Yes. Oh, actually, well, let's do, let's do uh, some commercials first, then we'll take care of it. <laughs> okay. While they're looking for it. We've been drawing tonight from a wonderful book, uh, DEFCON 2, Standing on the Brink of Nuclear War During the Cuban Missile Crisis, by Norman Polmar and John D. Gresham. That is just published by Wiley. John Gresham, obviously, is one of our guests tonight. The other is Arthur Sear of Carthage College, where he uh, runs the program on political economy and world business. The Clausen Center for World Business. That's Thank the you. proper name. I'm glad you remember. Well, Tom Clausen is a graduate who went on to run both Bank of America and the World Bank. And Adlai Stevenson was a former governor of Illinois, twice yes. candidate for the presidency of the United States, and during this crucial period, our ambassador to the UN. And just for the sheer aesthetics of it all, here's that famous scene uh, the date of it being a bit earlier, it's October 5, 1962, in which Stevenson is hectoring uh, the um, uh, Valerian Zorin, the Soviet delegate. Zorin, that's Zorin, right. Yes. To the United Nations. But if I understood what you said, you said that my position had changed, that today I was defensive because we didn't have the evidence to prove our assertions that your government had installed long-range missiles in Cuba. Well, let me say something to you, Mr. Ambassador. We do have the evidence. We have it, and it's clear and incontrovertible. And let me say something else. Those weapons must be taken out of Cuba. And next, let me say to you with a... if I understood you, with a trespass on credulity that excels your best, you said that our position had changed since I spoke here the other day because of the pressures of world opinion and the majority of the United Nations. Well, let me say to you, sir, you are wrong again. We have had no pressure from anyone whatsoever. We came in here today to indicate our willingness to discuss Mr. Uthon's proposals, and that is the only change that has taken place. But let me also say to you, sir, that there has been a change. You, the Soviet Union, has sent these weapons to Cuba. You, the Soviet Union, has upset the balance of power in the world. You, the Soviet Union, has created this new danger, not the United States. And you asked with a fine show of indignation why the president didn't tell Mr. Gromyko on last Thursday about our evidence at the very time that, the, that Mr. Gromyko was blandly denying to the president that the, United, uh, that the USSR was placing such weapons 
on sites in the New World? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we were assembling the evidence, and perhaps it would be instructive to the world to see how a Soviet official, how far he would go in Perkinie. Perhaps we wanted to know if this country faced another example of nuclear deceit, like that one a year ago, when in stealth the Soviet Union broke the nuclear test moratorium. And while you were asking, while we're asking questions, let me ask you why your government, your foreign minister, deliberately, cynically deceived us about the nuclear buildup in Cuba. And finally, the other day, Mr. Zorin, I remind you that you didn't deny the existence of these weapons. Instead, we heard that they had suddenly become defensive weapons. But today, again, if I heard you correctly, you now say they don't exist, or that we haven't proved they exist. With another fine flood of rhetorical scorn. All right, sir. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Don't wait for the translation, yes or no? <laughs> I'm not, I am not in an American courtroom, sir, and therefore I do not wish to answer a question that is put to me in the fashion in which a prosecutor does. In due course, sir, you will have your reply. World opinion right now, and you can answer yes or no. You have denied that they exist. I want to know if you, if this, if I have understood you correctly. Uh, so, would you please continue your statement? You will have your answer in due course. Continue your statement, please. You will receive the answer in the due course. Do not worry. I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. And I'm also prepared to present the evidence in this room. <laughs> Great theatrics. Amazing theatrics. Yeah. Did, um, it have, did that confrontation have any real bearing upon the way the crisis played itself through? Uh, yes, indeed, especially in comparison with um, what's turned out to be flawed intelligence that the Bush administration presented to the United Nations. I think uh, the Kennedy administration, including the president, deserves a lot of credit for making absolutely sure when the stakes were going to war, that uh, the information was valid. At that time, uh, the UN was generally considered, I think, a more central forum than today when uh, Henry Cabot Lodge lost his Senate seat to John F. Kennedy in an upset in 1952. Eisenhower made him. He'd been his loyal campaign manager, ambassador to the UN, and Nixon in turn picked him as running mate in 60. I also believe personally, although I can't prove this, that Kennedy was never planning to invade Cuba. I think he would have gone to the UN and he was making moves just before the October 28 communication that resolved the problem. He was making moves to, for a further UN presentation. 
Um, I take, and Mr. Pulmar and I take a slightly different view that, yes, the invasion was on. Uh, there was going to be an air campaign. The targets had been picked. The crews were being briefed. Practice missions were being flown. Mm -hmm. And the aircraft were being armed. Um, and we take the view also that because of the Soviet Union's relative indifference to what the United Nations said, that this was more theater for the rest of the world than any great influence upon Khrushchev and his inner circle. It was part of how the crisis played out, but it didn't really affect Khrushchev's reactions and how he how he and Kennedy resolved the crisis. Do you think Kennedy would have green-lighted airstrikes and an invasion on Monday, Absolutely. Tuesday? Absolutely. We have every indication uh, from both the tapes and from the people we talked to that he was he was ready to do it. Now he was, and let's let's qualify this. He was under great pressure from the military and from the intelligence community to do this. They right. saw this as a as an opportunity to excise Cuba from the Western Hemisphere. We um, are very late for uh, the invitation to give us a ring on the telephones, and I issue that invitation at this moment. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Five nine one. 7200 for any question you want to raise, any thought you want to share, any memory you want to activate. Uh, if you're listening to us over the Internet someplace else at some greater distance in the country or in the world, and you want to reach us via email, the email address is, as ever, extension720 at tribune.com. Get those calls and emails in. We'll take a last round of commercials and then directly on to your contributions. And right on to the phones and emails after I correct three or four errors I've made. I've been so involved <laughs> in this conversation that I've done a number of bloopers, uh, which uh, have been pointed out to me by the uh, uh, the best judge I've, and severest critic I've got, namely Maggie Burnt, the producer of the program. Uh, I um, said <coughs> that was the last commercials break. It wasn't. It was the next to the last one. I said that uh, the confrontation between uh, Stevenson and Zorin was on um, October 5th. Of course, I meant October 25th. And I got the casting wrong in the film Dr. Strangelove. It was George Scott who played Buck Churgidson, and Jack D. Ripper was played by Sterling Hayden. Right. All of that clear? Let's go to the phones. 591-7200. Good evening. Good evening. Some years ago, the History Channel did... Uh... I think it was a one- or two-hour show on the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was like on the 30th or 35th anniversary of the events, and they gathered together all of the living major players that uh, could meet. I think they met in Switzerland or, or Austria or something. And I remember watching this, and one of the things that was talked about, I, mean, I guess was revealed for the first time publicly, that was the Russians feared a seaborne invasion and in addition to the warheads for the nuclear missiles they had introduced somewhere between 50 and 60 tactical battlefield nuclear weapons yes. into Cuba and they were under the control of a major general who had been granted extraordinary authority by the Soviet government to use them at his discretion in the event that communications with Moscow were cut off which was a very real possibility then due to the fact they had no satellites and they had relay ships out in the middle of the Atlantic that could have easily been sunk by our Navy. And the camera was on McNamara when this was revealed, and his face went as white as a sheet and his jaw dropped. Now, in light of what you just said about Kennedy not contemplating an invasion but airstrikes, did they 
have some sense that the Russians might have had these tech nukes in Cuba, or were they just being prudent and uh, assuming that it was a possibility? Um, you're speaking specifically of the tape of the 1992 Havana conference where McNamara found out for the first time that, yes, there were a large number of tactical nuclear weapons that had been brought by the Soviets into Cuba. The conference was not in Switzerland, but in Havana. The, this was the first of a series that were held by Castro in Cuba. And Castro in this, attended. Castro hosted and attended. Yeah. And the actual number was over 100. We found an amazing variety of tactical nuclear systems that were deployed to Cuba on various platforms. And the answer is, to everything he said, is essentially yes. Uh, I should be clear what a tactical nuke is. Well, <laughs> a tactical nuke is, in theory, a smaller nuclear weapon that is used uh, to directly support battlefield operations, although the definition can be as small as a quarter kiloton for some of our nuclear demo demolitions and air-to-air -air missile warheads, or several hundred kilotons if it's, again, directly supporting a military operation. Our thanks to that caller, and let's go quickly to another on 5917200. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello. Um, there was some talk about uh, Stevenson. I just wanted to uh, remind people that he didn't support Kennedy for the nomination right. and might have been kind of playing Johnson's game. Uh, but... Uh, J. William Fulbright actually uh, advocated an invasion of Cuba, surprisingly. What does that say about Kennedy's uh, statesmanship? And then today with the Internet and satellite communication, would we uh, be in less danger in a similar crisis? I, I think, on balance, instant communication is a great plus at the top. It also means there's a lot more information readily available that you have to sort through. Roberta Wolstetter, um, who's taught at the University of Chicago, the widow of uh, Albert Wolstetter, a very great figure in nuclear strategy and a late colleague of Milt's, wrote a book on Pearl Harbor making the argument that there's always lots of noise. You've got to find the true signals. There were indications the Japanese were going to strike Pearl Harbor, but also that they were going to do a number of other things. She wrote an article in a journal called World Politics, I believe, after the missile crisis, making the same point that when you have a huge amount of information, it's very difficult to sort it all out, and I believe that point applies. All kinds of, we didn't mention Dean Acheson, who'd been Truman's Secretary of, of State and a major figure in defining deterrence in the Cold War. Uh, he was very much in favor of using force. Yes. Uh, people who don't have the executive authority often are more willing to be hard line, but that's the kind of sentiment that Kennedy was dealing with. Very different from the atmosphere of our time. We thank you, sir, for the call, and let us work in as many as we can in short order. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi. I was 11 years old at zero hour in October of 62, and it was being advised to parents to send their children to school because for there was the fallout shelters. And I'll never forget my mother, who kissed me every morning before I went to school, kissed me like she had never kissed me before. And getting on that bus in the morning, it was eerie. There was just a silence on that bus, on a, on a children's school bus, knowing that, that this crisis was so imminent. Uh, interesting memory. I imagine, uh, just as we all remember, if we're old enough, where we were when we heard of uh, uh, say, the dropping of the nuclear bomb or what have you. I think all of us who were old enough to be more or less compass mentis in the, uh, at that time remember where we were 
and where we heard or watched the speech of October 22nd. Yes, indeed. Uh, I watched it at home and on television. The next day, I was a freshman at UCLA and working in the afternoon and evening at a supermarket in Los Angeles. And it's uh, I've been around riots and have had other difficult experiences in my life. It's the only time I've seen panic. People paid mm -hmm. for what they took, but we were cleaned out that day. Just a sense of hysteria. Hoarding. Yes, yeah. including a woman who had a whole, two whole shopping carts full of nothing but bottled water and toilet paper. <laughs> and I was but a young lad of five years old uh, in Huntington Beach, California, just south of where Art was, growing up in the suburbs. And I remember my, my mother and father, who were devoted Nixon Republicans, um, looked ashen after the president's speech. And mind you, the Kennedys were not well-loved in our household, but... Uh, they were definitely affected, and I had the sense over the next few days that something important was going on. I wasn't sure what, but it was obviously very, very upsetting. Let me read you an email I've got here. Um, this brings back memories. I was a missile technician at Fairchild Air Force Base hmm. near Spokane, Washington during the crisis. We knew how close we were to war, and most of us were scared because we knew that our missiles would fire, and if it came to that, all bets were off. I've heard from some of my fellows that during the crisis, our missiles were re-aimed at Cuba. It turns out that we were far enough away to make that possible. Do your guests have any knowledge of that? We were the 567th Strategic Missile Squadron with a complement of nine Atlas E ICBMs. The answer is very probably. Um, General Keith Compton, who was the operations officer at SAC, had put together a, at least one contingency plan to go and destroy the missiles in Cuba by essentially carpet bombing the western half with very large nuclear weapons to essentially blow the, the aluminum balloons that were these missiles off their launchers. Uh, he had a squadron of B-47s down in Florida loaded with 10 and 20 megaton devices to do this, and I wouldn't be surprised, being that they are a redundant sort of mindset there at SAC, that he had these atlases on the pad waiting to do the same job. I said earlier that I had misspoken, and uh, though I announced the last commercial break, I was wrong. It was the penultimate commercial break. Here is the ultimate one, and then we'll return for more calls. I want to read you an email that I've got here. I'm not sure if you've already addressed this topic, and the answer is you haven't, and I'm glad that this has been raised uh, going on with the email. But what is your guest's opinion about the likelihood of blowback from Cuba having contributed to the events in Dallas in 1963? Well, that question, I think, is ultimately speculative. Al Haig, I don't know anything that other people in the public domain don't know. Alexander Haig, in his memoirs, Haig, before he was an assistant to uh, Henry Kissinger and was an assistant to Joe Califano in the Pentagon, an LBJ intimate, and before that, he was assigned. He got himself assigned as a military attaché to Bobby Kennedy, and he mentions that a reliable agent, not a nut, um, immediately after the assassination, a report came in that Oswald was seen in Cuba talking to Castro. This doesn't mean it happened, but Haig, who I think was being quite candid at this point in his career, was impressed at how many senior administration people told him, "Absolutely, this can't get out." Um, there was a real worry about World War at that time. And um, Oswald had so many mysterious associations and um, had s so much interchange with the U.S. government, including naval intelligence, that it feeds conspiracy theories. Two weeks before Dallas, more or less, Castro, who knew we were trying to, the government was trying to kill him, 
uh, said in a major public address in South America that those who would destroy the revolution should know that they themselves are at risk. There, you also, there's enough to feed endless speculation. There's though. another Cuban angle on an alternative theory about the assassination in Dallas. Uh, Jim Garrison's view, and was shared by others, was that it was done by what he, Garrison, called a rogue element of the CIA working mm -hmm. with disaffected uh, Miami Cubans. Very that possible. certainly is one possibility. Yet the irony of it was that at the moment that the assassination took place, Castro was having lunch with an envoy, an intermediary from the United States, who was making the first outreach to Cuba about possibly normalizing relations. And at the same time overseas, another plot to assassinate him was mm -hmm. being initiated yeah. over in Europe. Desmond Fitzgerald was it's, having a meeting in Paris to exactly. talk about killing him. And so you find these these intricate webs weaving in and out and trying to go ahead and make sense of them is almost impossible. Um, I, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. Uh, we just know what we know. We do know that the consequence, one uh, significant consequence of the crisis and the way it was resolved was within two years the fall of Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that he might have been in power much longer but for the way that he played the crisis through? No question. He had gone and spent 10 years doing the greatest political high-wire act of his oh. time. And he had done so through bluff and raise, um, propaganda, pretending he had more force and power than he did. And when the, when the crisis came apart and he had to take the missiles home, he lost a great deal of prestige, especially with the Soviet military. And when the time came to uh, yeah. take him out, uh, the one thing he managed to hang on to and the only thing was his own head. Uh, afterwards, you see Brezhnev and Kosygin going ahead and returning very much to the Stalinist uh, arms escalation that uh, you had seen under Stalin previously. And the fact that he was allowed to live represents major change and major progress. You point out in his book that uh, there's a good chance that Brezhnev was among those who wanted to have him eliminated. Very much so. When he was removed from power, both in a curious way. Kennedy and Khrushchev were very different. Stalin and Eisenhower were very different, but there was a problem in being Stalin's successor. The Politburo never gave Khrushchev real independent authority, and Kennedy had some of the same problems coming after Eisenhower. A, um, a last, question. Were, yes, a, a last question with only about two minutes left. Uh, Francis Fukuyama assured us a while ago that uh, the history had ended because the Cold War was over, and nothing like that would ever return. We've got other enemies in the world now, we know about them, but... The Soviet, uh, Russia is turning more like the old Soviet Union in some ways, and they still have that is more repressive and less uh, pseudo-democratic, and they still have uh, the second largest nuclear assault force in the world. Can we be absolutely sure that the delicate balance of terror might not get activated once again as between the U.S. and now Russia? The answer is there are no guarantees, and that could in fact happen. Uh, to assume that history and the Cold War have gone, I think, would be naive and foolish. Mm. And that the opportunity to go ahead and rebuild this, the Cold War construct is still out there. Most of the world has now chosen representative democracy and fairly open economies, including Russia to a limited degree. Russia doesn't have a strong democratic tradition, but the world is moving our way, and we have to keep at it. A lot of hard work ahead. Right. 
including accurate intelligence. Oh, and yes. and a president who's willing to be open-minded. That was Kennedy's great strength. We both we've all three said critical things about him, but Kennedy was remarkably open-minded. When he when he had the data sitting in front of him, he did not debate it. He was very very good in working with his intelligence people. It is time to once again make clear that John D. Gresham, who's been one of our guests tonight, is the co-author, together with Norman Polmar, of a fine new book that we've been drawing from in our conversation. It is titled DEFCON 2 uh, and is subtitled Standing on the Brink of Nuclear War During the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it is published by Wiley. Uh, Our other guest tonight has been Arthur Sear of Carthage College, whose books include After the Cold War, American Foreign Policy, and also U.S. Foreign Policy and European Security.